Thanks for that introduction, and I have to say that it's always such a remarkable encouragement to, uh, to come back uh, to be with you in uh, Bethlehem and also to be involved here at the checkpoint. And I also want to uh, thank the steering committee for inviting me to handle such a delicate theological assignment. I wanted to say also that, you know, um, those people who work on a program like this, this is a mountain of work. You know what I mean? And I think we ought to just recognize how much has been involved in putting this together. <clears throat> we, we have a saying on faculties, you know, that uh, faculty members are really hard to herd. It's like herding cats. Anyway, uh, putting this together has just been really a small miracle, and uh, there's some people who have been really invested. Uh, Munther Isaac, my friend, who is a just rising New Testament scholar here in Palestine, is somebody who has put so much uh, uh, imagination into this. I'm just impressed day by day. Well, um, one of the things that uh, I have to say, let me see if, my, uh, if this is my transitions are working here. Order, you may be doing my transitions for me. Yep. Slide number two, Porter. Okay, I think we're stuck on slide number one. There we go. All right. Okay, let's go back to slide number two. There. <laughs> okay, there we are. Now, one of the things I can say is that... Uh, some of the strangest conversations I've ever had in my life have taken place in the old city of Jerusalem. I remember talking with leaders of the ultra-Orthodox Holy Mount faithful who were eager to tell me where the new temple of Jerusalem was going to be built. They had all of the details worked out. And so I asked them one day in Jerusalem if the Dome of the Rock was in the way. Of course, they said, we're just going to have to move it someplace. This sounded like a very interesting project for a weekend. Then I was uh, in, on the Elwad Street in the old city of Jerusalem, and I was talking to an old eccentric rabbi who told me in whispered sentences that he believed he knew where the lost treasures of Herod's temple were hidden. He certainly had this Indiana Jones look in his eye, but not in his clothes. His hat was all wrong. One Saturday morning... I was sitting on the stairs at the Western Wall Plaza when a group of about five yeshiva boys uh, were heading away from the wall. So I had my camera in my hand, and they thought it was a good moment to come over and teach me a lesson about why you shouldn't take photos on the Sabbath. This sounded like fun. So after their sermon, I asked them, well, what is really wrong theologically with using a camera on Sabbath? Honestly, debating details of Sabbath observance on the Sabbath sounded very biblical, especially 100 yards from the temple. So they argue that pushing the button on the shutter release was doing work. I told them climbing all these stairs all over Jerusalem was more work. And on it went for about a half hour. This could have been a scene right out of the Gospels. I said I was celebrating the beauty of God's creation by taking a picture. They said I was breaking the law. I was having a great time. But the strangest conversation I've ever had was in the Christian quarter of Jerusalem. I happened to run into a few young men who were uh, Jewish settlers there, and I heard them speaking in English, and they were using a New York accent. This is when a naive tourist posture works extremely well as a strategy for conversation. 
So I asked them if I was lost. I said that I thought the Jewish quarter was sort of to the south, and I didn't understand why they were there. Now, these young men were in their 20s, and they were extremely helpful. They explained to me that the Jewish quarter was everywhere in the old city. Why? Because God had given the entire city of Jerusalem to them. But wait, I said, I thought the city was in four quarters and everybody was sharing it nicely. Well, they said, this is a temporary arrangement, but we were working to fix it. So I asked, okay, so how do you know that these Christian buildings around you actually belong to you? Easy, they said. God gave this land to Abraham and we are his descendants. We inherit everything. These young men were indeed from New York City, and they believed that a DNA connection to a 4,000-year-old man endorsed their property claims. They were now entitled. So let's make sure that we have the math here correct, just to be clear. So Abraham was given promises of land. I understand that. And then if you're a child of Abraham, you get to inherit the promises and you win the Holy Land. Okay, I understand that too. So these boys, therefore, win Jerusalem because apparently they have this connection to Abraham. Now, what happens is these, uh, these students were making an ancient point. It's an ancient point that Christian Zionists today make on a regular basis. And it is impossible to underestimate the force of an argument based on Abraham in this part of the world. This was true 2,000 years ago, just as it is true in Israel today. This country may be the only place in the world where millions of people have chosen to justify their claim on land by appealing to a single man who died somewhere around 2000 B.C. And they are dead serious. In Genesis 15, this link between Abraham and land is explicit. Genesis 15 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The promise to Abraham is reinforced throughout the Old Testament. It is repeated and used as the basis of Israel's inheritance. When you think about Abraham, it is almost impossible to avoid thinking about land promises in Genesis, the Holy Land, or Israel-Palestine. Out of all of the characters from the Hebrew Scriptures, certainly Moses is mentioned more than anyone else, about 80 times. But Abraham is a close second with 72 references that are distributed widely inside of the New Testament. All four Gospels mention Abraham. So does the book of Acts and most of Paul's letters. You can find Abraham in Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter. The reason for all of this attention is because Abraham was talked about everywhere in first century Judaism. Abraham was venerated. One Jewish writing puts it like this. Before the law was even given to Moses, Abraham had kept it because the law was written on his heart. Imagine that. Abraham knew the law before Moses knew the law. In fact, in first century Judaism, Abraham was the perfect embodiment of righteousness. He was perfect as regards the law. 
Now, the best place to take a look at this is in an ancient book called the Book of Jubilees. It's ideal because it's devoted to the story of Abraham. This ancient book was written in about 150 B.C., and it was well known by all Christian leaders until about the 4th century A.D., and then it disappeared. We only had fragments of Jubilees in some Latin, some Ethiopic, and Syriac, but then with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, we found 15 of them. It was a gold mine of riches to open the window on what Jews in the first century were thinking about Genesis and Abraham. Here in Jubilees, we get a glimpse of a creative Jewish imagination retelling the story. Jubilees says, Abraham was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness all the days of his life. Abraham was perfectly obedient to God and persevered through not only the trial with Isaac, but ten other trials. But most important, Abraham is the great father of Israel, the ancestor from whom every living Jew would take up his identity. Another Jewish book from the very same era, the Psalms of Solomon, puts it succinctly. God, it prays, you chose the descendants of Abraham to be above every nation. So therefore, to be attached to Abraham is to have a select place in the human family. It was an exceptional place. It was a place that was filled with privileges, and you felt entitled. So in the biblical world, Abraham was simply the hero of Jewish identity and culture. In the Roman era, Jews promoted him as the bringer of high culture. Jews said, well, he's an astronomer. He was an astronomer. He was an astrologer. He was a philosopher. He was a leading opponent of idolatry. He was a genius. And those who attached themselves to Abraham, they shared a place with God in his work in this world. Being a child of Abraham brought privileges. You were in God's inner circle. You enjoyed his blessings. You were a part of the economy of the world, his economy. You owned the holy land called Judea. These were commonplace ideas in the New Testament period of the first century. But were these privileges automatic? This was a difficult question 2,000 years ago, even as it's a difficult question today. Was it simply a matter of physical lineage that gave you these benefits, if you could say you had Abraham's lineage in your veins? I find it striking that early Judaism questioned that assumption. A Jew had to participate substantially in the qualities of Abraham's life if you were to be known as his disciple. In other words, faithfulness was important, not just DNA. Or put another way, ethnic attachment to Abraham could be annulled if you no longer lived like Abraham. You might be ethnically Jewish, but it was another matter, as the rabbis put it, whether or not you were Abraham's disciple. Only Abraham's disciples would enjoy the blessings of this world and the next. Now, the New Testament, of course, is a Jewish writing, so it's no surprise to any of us 
that the New Testament is going to start talking about Abraham. In Romans 4.1, Paul writes, So what should we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Fact is, Paul has a lot to say. Paul describes himself as an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, Romans 11.1. But this is where things begin to get interesting, because the New Testament weighs in on this question of who is really a child of Abraham. Listen to John the Baptist. He was once confronted by some Jewish leaders who shared little of the faith of Abraham. And John the Baptist said, do not presume, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For John said, I tell you this, God could raise up children for Abraham from these rocks. Or John the Baptist, pure ethnicity had limited benefits. Or listen to the Apostle Paul. In Romans 9, 7, he writes, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. See, these are prophetic critiques that are nothing short of astonishing in the New Testament. Christians were willing to redefine or maybe narrowly define what it means to be truly of Abraham. But the New Testament says something even more astonishing. If blessings and privileges are being distributed through Abraham, the true children of Abraham may be the followers of Jesus. There are three New Testament passages that illustrate this very important theological move. And I might add, it is a move that would have surprised those young men in the old city of Jerusalem to no end. The first debate begins with Jesus in John chapter 8. In John 8, some of Jesus' Jewish opponents disagree with him sharply. He says, well, you know, you are slaves to sin. They say, well, wait, we are descendants of Abraham. We have never been slaves, which is something that's not exactly true. Jesus then says that there is a difference between a slave and a child in a household. And even though these Jews are descendants of Abraham, the Greek word actually is seed, they are a seed of Abraham. Still, he implies that they may not be sons. There it is. You can be a descendant of Abraham and not be a son of Abraham. Faith matters. Jesus' opponents then reassert their identity with Abraham. Abraham is our father, John 39. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, and the Greek verb here actually makes this a very real condition, if you were... If this were true, then your conduct would be like that of Abraham, but your conduct betrays you. And it gets worse. Jesus says, if God were your father, another real condition, then you would behave differently and not try to kill me. In other words, conduct betrays true identity. Someone can be a descendant of Abraham, but not qualify as his son. Notice what Jesus says very carefully. Now, Jesus' opponents then ask him if he thinks he is greater than Abraham. Jesus says that, well, Abraham rejoiced when he saw Jesus stay. And, of course, this puts Jesus' audience in a conundrum. 
could Abraham and Jesus have seen each other? Do you know this is a really unusual place in Genesis 17 where Abraham starts laughing when he finds out about his very old wife suddenly becoming pregnant. And the rabbis in the first century really were concerned about this because they really didn't want to imagine Abraham laughing at God. So therefore, their interpretation was Abraham at that moment had a glimpse of the future. He spotted the Messiah and he started laughing with joy because he saw him. So therefore... Abraham and Messiah know each other. They celebrate with each other. But then Jesus says in John 8, 58, I have to tell you, he says, Messiah is greater even than Abraham. So notice what is happening here. Someone could be a descendant of Abraham, but fail to be Abraham's son. Messiah, Jesus, is greater even than father Abraham. And this is enormous because in Judaism in this period, no one is greater than Abraham. Abraham himself knew this, and he celebrated it. So attachment to Jesus exceeds the value of attachment to Abraham. In fact, someone who follows Jesus is a follower of Abraham. They belong to Abraham. The next vital passage in this, in New Testament thinking, is Galatians 3, 15 to 18. This connection between the Messiah and Abraham was vital in this early Jewish period. Paul knows it. He is a trained rabbi. In Galatians, Paul does something, however, that is so unexpected. Paul uses Abraham as his model of a life organized by faith, and he is writing to Gentiles. Gentiles? Gentiles get to use Abraham? Abraham was righteous without circumcision, he says. So, Paul argues, it is people of faith, uncircumcised people of faith, who are the true children of Abraham. But he goes even further. Paul admits that the great promises to Abraham and his seed stands there in the Old Testament. But then he does something very rabbinic. He uses the grammar of the Old Testament to make a point. He says, seed is singular here, and even though it's a collective singular, Paul says there is a secret hidden in Genesis that he is about to explain. The true seed of Abraham, singular, the true heir of Abraham is one, and it is Jesus Christ. So this is why Paul cites Genesis 12:3 in Galatians 3:8. In Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed. Because Gentiles who are attached to Christ by faith are thereby attached to Abraham. So look at Galatians 3.9. People of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Take this in. Paul has just pulled every Gentile Christian into the family tree of Abraham. He has just answered the question about Abraham and entitlements. The blessings of Abraham accrue to those who have the faith of Abraham. And since Abraham is linked to Christ, faith in Christ makes you a child of Abraham. For Paul, this principle preceded the law. It is a covenant principle. It cannot be annulled. Thirdly, finally, Romans 4. Many scholars think that if you want to probe this thinking in Paul very deeply, you have got to move to Romans 4. 
It's a long chapter. We can only make a couple of footnotes. Paul is a good rabbi when he promotes Abraham as the ideal man of God. In fact, Paul is promoting Abraham as a role model for Gentile Christians in Rome. That alone is shocking. Abraham's righteousness was obtained, he says, not by the law, but by faith. He was blessed by God when he was uncircumcised, and therefore this is the vital secret. Paul says that, quote, the purpose of this was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. We call them Gentiles. But he is also the father of those who are circumcised. He is the father of all who have faith. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 13. A remarkable verse. The promise to Abraham, the blessings to him and his heirs, was not, Paul writes, for the Holy Land, but was for an inheritance of the entire world. What in the world is he thinking? This is astounding. This is not in the Old Testament. Abraham is going to inherit the entire world? Talk about the boundaries of Israel. They get Argentina, too. Now, this promise can only be true because Gentiles who live outside of Israel share in the inheritance. So Paul says in 4.17 that Abraham can now be seen as the father of many nations. Because sharing the faith of Abraham is what makes you a part of Abraham's family tree. So, where does this leave us? This means that if we are thinking about this matter of entitlement and privilege and religion and Abraham, it isn't as easy as saying that you are physically a descendant of Abraham. That your name is on the family tree. Paul is merely echoing an idea that Judaism already knew. The faith of Abraham is not negotiable. It isn't about DNA. Someone can still be ethnically or culturally Jewish, Paul would argue, but it is another matter if they, quote, belong to Abraham and are a part of covenant privileges. As Paul says in Romans 2, you know, circumcision can become uncircumcision. Same argument. But Paul takes another step. Those who hold faith in Christ also now should be seen as Abraham's children, no matter what their race is. You should know that outlining this development in the New Testament is deeply controversial. Here in Israel, Palestine, few people will want to do it. Immediately, some of my friends will accuse me of replacement theology or supersessionism. But here is where we need to clear up some real confusion. Here I've tried to make a little diagram that might help us just a bit. What supersessionism does is it posits, yes, that there is Abraham and there is his lineage that comes through Judaism. But supersessionism says with the coming of Christ, that lineage, that history, that legacy that comes through Judaism comes to an end. And all that Judaism really gets to do is receive the guilt of the death of Christ. And that has given birth to endless anti-Judaism that we ought to repudiate. Supersessionism says, okay, then what happened is the great work of God, therefore, has moved to the church, a combination of Messianic Jews and Gentile believers. And therefore, if you ask who God's people are in the world today, simply you would say Gentile Christians. 
But instead, I think what we want to understand is that there's another way to write this equation. And I think I might call it messianic fulfillment. What I mean by this is that we have another way in which we need to see it. We need to see in this diagram that the church continues the great legacy of Abraham because it is a community of Jews and Gentiles who together reflect the faith of Abraham now seen in Christ. But Judaism holds an incomparable place in history because of its legacy. It is not rejected. But it will return to the olive tree rooted in Abraham when it embraces Christ by faith. So therefore, what makes this not supersessionism is this line right here. The only way I think to read Romans 11 is that God, under, God is continuing to have a program with the Jewish people whom Paul describes as enemies of the gospel. And he looks forward to that moment, that moment when Christ returns. And when he does, that church is going to be a united church of Jews and Gentiles. So therefore, how does Paul describe this community here? It's a community that is a community of broken branches. It's a community loved for the sake of their ancestors. That's the diagram I think that we want. Judaism continues to be a part of our family. And like Paul, we yearn for them to embrace Messiah Jesus. This is why Paul evangelizes synagogues. Inside of Israel, there has been a long and complicated conversation about Jewish identity. Is it ethnicity? Is it culture? Is it belief? This is not my conversation. As Christians, we are a part of a different conversation. We need to begin thinking like Christians about matters of faith and privilege. We need to raise tough questions when Western Christians come to Israel-Palestine and make bold pronouncements about who owns Jerusalem and who inherits the land of promise of Abraham. Perhaps we should say enough already to evangelicals who use the Bible to score political points instead of a God-honoring peace. In a word, Christian thinking overturns all of the standard categories of identity. According to our scriptures, the family of Abraham includes all those who share his faith, including those who hold faith in Christ. And this includes the Palestinian church living right here in Israel-Palestine. Simply put, Christians are children of Abraham. Period. I think I am profoundly tired deeply tired of meeting fellow Christians in my evangelical family. And no, I know I'm going to meet some of them right after I'm done here. I'm looking forward to it. And they all want to use their favorite verse out of Genesis 12 or a Romans 11 to promote some interest. They might say, well, because of who I am or because of who they are, I demand that they get privileges here in this country. I am hungry for the deeper virtues of the Christian faith. I'm hungry to meet evangelicals who come to this land and promote charity and generosity and forgiveness and humility. In all this debate about religious ethnicity and privilege so well known in the Middle East, 
I prefer to follow the guidance of Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. By the way, the word here is not necessarily earth. Since Jesus is talking about inheritance, you could actually translate that very word as land. Blessed are the meek. They're going to get the holy land. I like that. That's what I yearn for. Discovering those who are meek instead of those who fight for religious privilege in this place. I have a fantasy. I have a dream. Crazy fantasy. Of returning to the old city of Jerusalem someday and seeing those boys again from New York. Actually, I know exactly where they live. I imagine them beginning to use their ethnicity as the basis of their privileges and entitlement to be settlers. They'd be backed by the International Christian Embassy. Oops, I shouldn't have said that. They are willing to take other people's land because of their ethnicity. And this time I think I'd ask them something awkward. As if I hadn't already. I would ask something like this. Is it possible, you guys, to be a descendant of Abraham and not be his son? How would that be fun? But it is precisely the line of reasoning I hear from the rabbis of the first century. John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul. Religion, when it's used for entitlement, is generally connected to sin. But I'd go further. I'd tell them I'm mostly Swedish. And I'd say that I think I'm a son of Abraham too and I because I share Abraham's faith. And I know that would start a really cool little debate. Better than my camera on Sabbath escapade. They'd say, what? Are you crazy? Abraham was a Swede? And I'd say, no, 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 no. You guys don't get it. It's not about DNA. Abraham was the father of many nations. And then we'd be living in John chapter 8, right on a Jerusalem street. How cool is that? But why not throw caution to the wind? Just before I escaped to the airport, I would tell them Jesus was the premier son of Abraham. I'd tell them that my Palestinian Christian friends here are also Abraham's children. And if privileges are being connected to Abraham, well, I'll tell you what, maybe they ought to be in your equation. And I'd quote Paul. I'd say, he was a rabbi, by the way. Abraham is the father of the circumcised. And they would say, amen. And then I would say, Abraham is also the father of the uncircumcised. And if I did, oh, I'm sure our little debate would really get going. And it would become stranger and stranger and more and more stressful than anything about cameras. Because it would strike at the heart of so much grief in this part of the world. Thank you.